0: Invite you to turn in your Bibles to a classic Christmas time text. Luke chapter 2. We're looking at verses 8 through 14 this morning. It's where the shepherds receive their notification. What I'd like to do, this being something of an Advent Sunday, the Sunday before our celebration of the birth of Christ, is look at what the scripture has to say about the promise of peace on earth. That promise was made a long time ago. That promise was made in the mind of God before the foundation of the earth. That promise of peace. Him not being caught off guard by the sin of man, the fall of mankind in the Garden of Eden. He knew what would need to happen in order to restore those who bore His image and likeness. And He has succeeded, of course, so we want to take the time that we need this week and next to look at the promise of peace on earth, and then next week we will look at the arrival of the Prince of Peace. So for now, let's read Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Father, thank you so much for this promise. I pray that you help us now that we could grow in our appreciation for how well articulated this promise was throughout the ages. As far back as we want to look, we can see evidence of the gospel, and we can see the need for the Prince of Peace himself, the one who would bring about peace on this earth. So we thank you, Lord. We thank you for the whole Scripture, for all of what it has to say about what you've done through the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. So help us now, I pray, to understand these very important words. In Christ's name, amen. So what strikes us, uh, especially living in our day and age, is this expression that on earth, peace. And if a question mark pops up, well, that would make rational sense, I I would agree, because we don't see much of peace. Jesus arrived some 2,000 years ago, and yet we continue to see strife. We see wars, we see crime and and social strife in our country, we see wars in the Middle East, we see the wars in Ukraine with the Russians, we see just uh, the most heinous acts of man's inhumanity to man. And so with things getting, excuse me, darker, we're wondering, how could it, Get much worse, and it's rather barbaric right now in terms of our ability now to get news in its gory detail uh, from around the globe. So it's it's we're hard pressed to know when this peace is going to come, or is it here? In the sense, both are true, isn't it? In the sense, Christ has come, and in the sense, another sense, he sends he will come again, and so. We wait, we wait, and we trust, and we hope. In uh, nineteen, in uh, 1918, was at the end of World War I, a preacher by the name of uh, John Henry Jowett preached a sermon on December 25th of 1918. And here's what he wrote. It sounds like he was in a similar situation that I'm describing. The angel's song begins with, Glory to God in the highest. Therefore, I must ask myself in these gloomy and distressing days through which we are passing, days which are darkened with human hatred and ill will and racial strife, racial warfare and strife, where does my thinking begin? It's a fair question to ask, but he actually states the beginning place for us. The beginning place, of course, our thinking has to begin with the glory of God and then the promise promised peace will come this this was a a very tumultuous time this this was a war that this world war 1 from 1914 to 1918 was very uh distressing for the world over it had never seen such carnage except for perhaps the civil war here but this is global involving a number of countries in europe and eventually america entered in, in 1917 there were 41 million casualties 20 million killed and 21 million uh, wounded in world war 1 and so they had a, an idea at least under president woodrow wilson we we and the countries agreed at that time and this was so horrible this was so terrible to see this kind of destruction and death, that they wanted to find a way to form some consortium of nations that could get together to end all wars. That was their their mission when the uh, League of, of Peace, as it became known, the League of Nations became known. It failed later on, sort of been taken up by the United Nations now. And, well, let me just read the um, their stated purpose for the League of Nations was, quote, it was formed as the first intergovernmental organization whose principal mission was to maintain world peace. Do you suppose even for a moment they had success? They did not. <laughs> they did not, unfortunately. So we sense the need for peace. We sense our desire to and longing for peace, but we just don't know how to bring it about. And neither did they. It ended up falling apart in September of 1938 out of the defeat of the Germans in World War I, out of their humility, which spawned a nationalism and a pride that rose up and created a leader named Adolf Hitler. And Neville Chamberlain in 1938, in September of 1938, the British Prime Minister went to meet with Herr Hitler in Munich and uh, to sign the peace accords that they had that there would be peace. He goes back to London, number 10 Downing Street, and makes the announcement to all the press and the people gathered there. I believe we've established, achieved, accomplished true peace in our time. That was September of 1938. What do you supposed to happen in September of 1930? Or that was, yeah, 1938, and then 1939, what do you supposed to happen? Yeah, one year later, Hitler invades, Germany invades Poland and Russia, and we have World War II. So as I was thinking about those things, I thought, how seemingly impossible to resolve this is. And yet God, within our gospel, within the scripture, holds the, the key to peace on earth. This isn't just some random statement for Christmas time. On earth, peace among those with whom he is well pleased. The angels that are there rejoicing in chorus, in concert, are rejoicing because this is the greatest news that human beings, that human uh, a human being could ever receive. So, how was the glory of God lost in his human image bearers. Well, the answer is already alluded to. It's in the garden by the disobedience of Adam. We understand that humankind, human beings as a race were now fallen. So Genesis three seventeen and 19 picks it up. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of, of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you and by the way when I was reviewing this I thought how interesting that we were talking about the voice of God in first hour we get into trouble when we turn away from the voice of God and listen to alternate voices and that's what happened in the garden of which I commanded you you shall not eat curse is the ground because of you in pain you shall eat of it, all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you till you return to the ground. Allusion obviously to the fact that physically, we will die. For out of you, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So they didn't drop dead right then and there, even though God said they were surely die in chapter 2 and verse 17. This is the command that they disobeyed, but they died spiritually. They lost the immediacy of their communion with their creator God, whom they loved. They demonstrated that love through perfect obedience to him. They listened to another voice. She listened to the voice of a serpent that was rather subductive, and he listened to the voice of his wife who had been... Deceived, and that's how it came about. So, the problem that it left us with in terms of the human race the reason it this is the reason why we need a gospel, this is the reason why we need a savior. The malignancy that caused both spiritual death and eventually physical death is congenital, it affects the entire human race. So, we're all spiritually stillborn, in other words, we can't do anything about that. Do you see this traveling out of Genesis chapter 3 right into chapter 4? It isn't very long. Just a few short verses later we read in Genesis 4, 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. You not only have the first instance of murder, it's fratricide, the first case of a brother murdering brother within a few short verses of the fall of man, but it gets worse. 1 John 3.12 says, And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. A couple of chapters later in Genesis six five, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil continually. And you know what happened after that. It rained a little bit. It rained for quite a bit, and he flooded the entire earth with the exception of Noah and his family that they saved on the ark. That's how far we've fallen as people. We hear from the psalmist in Psalm 14, 2 to 3, which is repeated in Romans 3. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God, they all have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So the entire planet, so the Psalms were written 900 to 1000 BC, which would take it back to about David. So this is much later than Noah, and we've got the same problem. The same problem is there, and that is that Every person on the planet is fallen. Something has to be done. Because it's impossible for a human to heal himself from this spiritual and physical corruption. We can't save our physical life. Eventually we're all going to die. The ratio is one to one. And we can't do anything about our spiritual death either. God has to do something. Job made that point clear in Job 14.4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? You can't take from a vessel that's entirely permeated with, with fallenness to make something clean. It's soiled. Whatever it produces is going to be sullied. It's going to be polluted. We can't do it. Even our righteous acts, even our best righteous acts, are considered what in Isaiah? Filthy rags. They're, they're filthy because they've come from us, a heart that's soiled. So we can't do that. The next chapter of Job 15, verse 14, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? It's, it's impossible on his own. Psalm fifty-one, five: David understood from his sin. He came to the conclusion, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother died. Did my mother conceive me? So he understands that we're stillborn, we're spiritually stillborn out of the womb. And so concluding with Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So that's where we find ourselves when we get ready to take a look at what the Scriptures have to say about the promise for peace. I want to know what God had to say through earlier prophets, through psalmists, whomever, through Moses, whomever. Is this promise for peace real? If it's something that we can bank on, we can trust in, we can hope for with a real hope, a living hope, not just a hope so, not just wishful wishful thinking. This is really going to happen. Can we do that? And this prepares us for next Sunday. This prepares us for the Advent of Jesus Christ who will bring about redemption and peace. Verse 8, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock. So the first statement I have for us there is the Savior who brings redemption and peace into the world will be born in Bethlehem. That was prophesied in Micah five two. We're going to see the prophecies as they emerge, connecting them with real-time appearances and fulfillments in our gospel story, in the story of Christ's arrival. And it's pretty amazing. So the shepherds out in the field, the fields were near Bethlehem. Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem, so it's almost certain that these shepherds are most likely tending sheep that will be slaughtered by the hundreds, even thousands over Passover. It's an amazing how many are slaughtered during the Passover. There's some, I believe, some estimates are close to a million that show up from all different countries. They emerge, they descend rather, on Jerusalem for the Passover. They're called to do that. So the place is flooded with people. It's Passover. And these shepherds are out there. But you got Passover. is going to go on in the temple. Jerusalem's like the key city, yeah? When he returns, he's going to return and come through the eastern gate of the Temple Mount area. That's the important city. It's still be fought and being fought over now. What's up with the angels showing up out in the country, down to the south, six miles away, to shepherds? Why would he do that? Shepherds were lowly. They were considered dirty, look at what they tended to sheep sheep were typically filthy animals they had wool and you can imagine dragging a, a a wool fleece around through the woods and down through the mud and through the nettles and the thistles and so on they had an a, a sheep have an oil that's given off so when they come in contact with dirt or dust it sticks in their in their their uh wool gets matted down and they'll have the nettles and the thistles and things sticking in and sometimes they'll have injuries because they're so so dumb they get themselves injured and so they're they're a mess and the shepherd is there and each morning he has the sheep in a sheepfold each morning and that shepherd by the way the gate is him The sheep would have to crawl over his body to leave the sheepfold, which is carved into the side of a hill. That's why Jesus refers to himself as the door in John 10, as the good shepherd. And when they arise in the morning, the dawn, and the sheepfold and the shepherd wakes up, he gets up. He calls out to each one with a, their own little guttural sound that he uses to name each one. He knows them all personally. And as they come through the opening to go out and feed for the day, he runs his fingers through that nasty wool of theirs to see if there's any infestation, if there's any injuries that he has to tend to. They were filthy, smelly, this job, this occupation of shepherd. But lest we think it's uh, an altogether... Uh, not worthy of being respected. Moses was a shepherd, wasn't he? When God found him, he was a shepherd. Who else was a shepherd? King David was a shepherd. He was actually the, the runt of that litter, wasn't he? They even, this is how God works. What's he trying to say by doing it that way? What's the message for us there? Why shepherds? Why sheep? Starts to make sense when we really take a hard look at things though. So Bethlehem. This this is this is a, a, a city name that it's actually a small town. We we were there when we were over in Israel and Bet is house. So Bethlehem is the house of bread. Making sense, isn't it? It all starts coming together, and that's what I want to see here this morning is these things that we want to take at least a brief amount of time to make the connection so we have a richness to our appreciation for what we're given at Christmas time instead of just reading these things and smiling because our kids that are reciting it are actually getting the words right, which is cute and fun. But we want to, we're adults, well, most of us, so we want to see what the Word of God has to say about this so they're most likely intended they're they're sh- tending the sheep that are going to be sacrificed for the passover the announcement of the birth of the son of the most high matthew or luke 132 the savior of the world in john 442 is made to the lowest of all of jewish society why why well, i think we can find out from scripture why as we go along, in this, the greatest, clearly, inarguably, the, the most significant moment in human history, this announcement is the, by far and away, the greatest ever made. And he's out there out in a field making it to shepherds. James 2 5 helps us understand, perhaps, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. See, that's Adam's failure. He failed to love God because Jesus defines what love is. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you you would have loved me in the garden, you would have done what I told you to do or told you not to do. So you actually, your big failure isn't the disobedience. It's that that's a clear reflection of your lack of love for me. You turned away from me. That's why God's heartbroken with his people. That's why he he sounds like a spurned lover. He should. That's why in one place he's divorcing Israel and divorcing Judah. That's the language he uses. He's heartbroken. The issue isn't so much the formal disobedience or obedience. The issue is if you love me, you will follow me. If you love me, you will listen to me. And you didn't do that. So I'm not going to the religious ones anymore. I'm going to the dregs of the world, like when Jesus was hanging around in the house with sinners, remember that? And the the religious Pharisees were just appalled at him. Why would you company with sinners like that? That's who he came to save. I got a list for us that I pulled from the places that talk about who he came to with an appeal for redemption and peace. The Savior who brings redemption and peace into the world appeals to the poor, the despised, the needy, the weak, the lowly, the brokenhearted, the captives, and those who mourn. That's my short list. You finding yourself on it? I am. I thought that was my biography right there. That's who he came to. Let's see if there's some text to support that bold statement. Isaiah 63, 1-3. In prophesying the arrival of this Redeemer, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news. That's what we're seeing. Coming to fruition in our text. To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And in the end, very important, that he may be glorified. See, that's our problem. We start in the middle of our text. We start with peace on earth, goodwill toward those with whom he is well pleased. We leave out the first clause, glory to God in the highest, and that glory is critically important because it is the glory of God that is brings about that is the seedbed for the peace on earth and the goodwill that men who are reconciled in him will receive that's where we need to start the air struck me <laughs> like a ton of bricks We start in the middle. Why? Because we always are thinking of things in terms of ourselves. This is about the glory of God. And as we go through to this morning with further text, I want you to see how this, this Messiah who will come to reconcile and to bring peace, it's connected with His glory. And as we leave this place today, we want to make sure we understand that in its right order. This is about God. It's not about me. I'm the beneficiary. He would take a wretch like me and offer me the inheritance of his son? Why? Because I'm just such a good guy. No, because if he takes somebody like me and says, I'm going to clean you up and I'm going to change you and I'm going to make you like my son, more than that you're going to share in his inheritance and in glory it's not about me it's about his glory he's glorified in this reclamation project that he has what reclamation project what did he lose in the garden the glory of God that was to be reflected in his creatures that, bared his, that bore his image and likeness he wants that back I mean, he'll get it back won't he With or without certain people. We continue to reject, we're not included. So, David wrote a coronation psalm for his son Solomon as he's going to take over, but we don't want to miss the uh, messianic references. We don't want to overlook them. They're actually in the psalm that was read for us this morning in Psalm 20, or 72, rather, verse 7. And I'll read verse 7 and then 12 to 14, just a portion of that psalm we heard. Verse 7, in his days may the righteous flourish and peace abound till the moon be no more. Verse 12, for he delivers the needy. Here we are again when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak, thank God, and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence he redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight that's him so these are the ones that he appeals to these are the only ones who will listen to him, listen to hear his voice. Why? Because of their neediness and all of the rest of those adjectives that describe their desperate plight. They're crying out to him, have mercy, O God, have mercy, O God. And he's saying, I will have mercy on you. I will have mercy on you. Mary even recognized that in her magnificent In Luke 1, 48, and verse 52, she says in her Magnificat, it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of literature, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. She says to him, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Such submission to the voice of God would that we all had. Yeah? Perfect submission. Why? Because there's humility there. And guess what else there is? We identified it this morning, first hour. Humility and what? Love. Love. She loves her Savior. She loves her God who promises to save. She loves the one who will do something about it. And now it's given to her to carry the Christ child. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Uh, Clearly, the greatest obstruction to being able to benefit from this is human pride, isn't it? Human pride and lack of love, or should I say not lack of love, but love for self. We have to be made desperate. I had to, to come to Christ. He had to knock me in the kneecaps until I was bloodied and fallen. Then I would cry out, that's us. That's who he can come to. He can't... Man has to come to the end of himself before God can do anything with him, right? Very true. Here's another list from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. Here's another part of the list. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And here's how he did it in 2 Corinthians verse 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich in the majestic position that he held as the Son of God on high, the right hand of the Father himself, fully deity, fully equal in essence, fully equal in in every way and setting those things aside to come down and condescend to be a man. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became what? Poor. Why? Well, here's the purpose clause because it says that, so that, here's why he did it, by his poverty, we might become rich. He offers it to us, he sets it aside. He sets it aside. And he comes to those who are absolutely corrupt and morally bankrupt and offers it to us. And friends, that's that's all of us apart from Christ. I hope you know that. Our pride wants us to lean on certain merits or certain statements we've made or certain good works that we've done. We have to recognize that we are on this list. We have to recognize our utter bankruptcy or we'll never be able to receive the fullness of his righteousness, a foreign righteousness offered freely to us. Here's how Philippians 2, 6 to 8 puts it. Speaking of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, his equality on high, the majestic glory on high isn't something I'm going to insist on holding on to when I go down there to save sinners. You're all going to know that I'm this great, grand, glorious, majestic God. No, I, don't, I can let that go. What was that like for him to condescend to become man among fallen creatures that was supposed to bear his image and instead blaspheme him? Ignore him. Live lives counter to the ones that he called us to. What was that like for him? Verse 7, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Wow. And so Matthew can write, obviously, in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There it is. That's what gets you there. A recognition and a full confession and admittance. I'm bankrupt. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. You've got the mercy. And much, much much more. With so much offered, why is it? Did you ever wonder why it isn't that all people would simply? That's how f- strong and formidable the pride of man is. In our desire to run our own lives, that's how strong it is. We, we shouldn't trifle with that. Pride, we're blind to it, right? Pride is self-masking and it's self-preserving. It hides, it retreats, it's viral, it's in the spine, and it every once in a while will manifest itself in ugly pustules that people can see your pride showing up, but you don't see it. You're blind to it. Why? Because it wants to live. Why? Because it's yourself, it's the self which we've given a capital S. It wants to survive. I want to survive doing things my way. I want to survive by controlling things. I want to survive by other people doing things my way. Thank you very much. That's not going to get you to the cross. Tears and brokenheartedness and a full and complete recognition of who you are before a holy God. ought to do it. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. Frankly, they were terrified. They're absolutely petrified. And that's the appropriate response from somebody who's suddenly in the presence of God's glory. Imagine what that must have been like. (laughs) Is everybody okay? That's okay. I just want to make sure somebody didn't just fall fall off the chair or something. So this is the re- appropriate response. We look back at, for instance, Isaiah. You remember when it says in Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting up upon a throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple above him stood the seraphim each had six wings with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet and with two he flew and one called to another and said holy 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 is the lord god of hosts The whole earth is full of his glory. So he's getting a big dose of it, right? He's getting a big dose of the glory of God. And you see his response. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And he said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Right response, Isaiah. Absolutely appropriate response. Or in Revelation, you remember when The way that John was able to write the um, book of Revelation was he was invited to come up. He was called up to heaven to see because the Lord was going to show him things, and boy, did he ever. Chapter 1, verse 17, when I saw him, he's seeing the Lord. He does his best to describe him, but they're all anthropomorphisms. But it's it's, it's like Ezekiel. It's almost impossible to describe God from a physical creature. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. Fear not is used throughout all of Scripture. You know, the Old Testament and New. God has to, anybody in his company or experiencing his glory has got to be settled down, has got to be calmed down, right? It's only appropriate. So they're paralyzed with fear. They're probably in some sort of like coma or catatonic kind of a state. This is just an amazing display. Verse 10, and the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. See, the fear not is followed by the good news. The same was for for John and the same was in Isaiah his, he, he was cleansed with the coal that the angels brought and, and set it to his unclean lips to cleanse him. His garments are exchanged for the righteous garments of Christ. You don't have to fear. It reminds you of Jesus when he was in the boat and there was a great storm. And Jesus calms the storm. And when the disciples were afraid because of the storm, it said they feared exceedingly the one who was now in the boat with them. That commanded the storm to stop and it stopped this is God this is him I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people J C Ryle wrote we need not wonder at these words the spiritual darkness which had covered the earth for 4,000 years was about to be rolled away the way to pardon and peace with God was about to be thrown open to all mankind. Salvation was no longer to be seen through types and figures, but openly and face to face. Amazing. So here's our another statement. The Savior who brings redemption and peace into the world will be for all the people. The scriptures, Old Testament and New, are replete with the repetition that um, this, offer, this offer of redemption and peace is made to all people, not just to Israel. You remember even at Simon's, or Simeon's prophecy when Jesus was a baby and they were at the temple, the Simeon came and said, for my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So dropping back again to give that promised support for this very thing, we see in Isaiah 61 to 3, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations, plural, nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. But you see the glory there again. Glory shows up a lot because that's what this is all about. Even in this next text of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 18 to 19, for I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and shall see my glory. You see, that's what's about. That's where we need to start. Glory to God in the highest. And if that is accomplished, if that is sought after, you will know peace on earth. We seek the glory of our God. And from them I will send survivors to the nations that they have not heard my fame or seen my glory and they shall declare my glory among the nations. So this glory, this glory initiative that God's on that was lost when the place went dark, the entire planet went dark because the communion with God, the relationship with God was cut off. Sin separates. Sin does that. Your sins have separated. Your iniquities have separated you from the Lord, Isaiah wrote. And now he's made a way. He's made a way for us to be redeemed and have peace. Psalm 67, 2-3. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. All nations praise you. Psalm 86, 9, and 10. All nations, all the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's the intention. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. And then in the New Testament, in chapter 15 of Romans, we can see just in this few verses between verse 8 and 12 of Romans 15, Paul is citing a number of Old Testament verses. Verse 8, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to the Jews. This This is why Christ became a servant to the Jews, to show God's truthfulness, in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So there's the promises. They were given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God. For his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him the Gentiles hope. He can't cite enough from the Old Testament. It's all coming together for him, just as it all came together, all this scriptures that were extant at the time for the disciples when the Holy Spirit came and lit them all up. Lit not them up, but lit the scriptures up and it made sense to them. They were able to put it all together. That's what Paul's doing here. They now have the Holy Spirit. Now their scriptures are making sense. It's not it's like he had to say to the two men on the road to Emmaus it's like he had to open up the scriptures to reveal himself. He said in the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew 5, he said, you, you Pharisees, you're searching the scriptures because you think in the words you have eternal life, but it's they that speak of me. And so we have to see the whole of scripture come together that the glory of, of God might be seen in the face of Jesus Christ. That's what the intention is here in with paul but backing back up to our gospel in luke chapter 2 verse 11 for unto you is born this day in the city of david a savior who is christ the lord the savior who brings redemption and peace into this world will be born in bethlehem to a virgin descended from king david so these are all the preemptive prophecies that we see coming together to prepare us for the advent of our Savior. Psalm 132, verse 11, The Lord swore to David, a sure oath from which he will not turn back, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. 700 years before his birth, Isaiah, again, chapter 9 and verse 6, For to us a child is what? Born. Born. To us, a son is given. We'd like to hear that song. We need to pause for a second. It caught my attention. He's not just born. He's not just showing up. He's showing up for us, right? Isn't that what it says? But it doesn't stop there. That short verse also includes this, something very fascinating. Unto us, a child is born. Unto us, a son is what? He's given to us all 700 years, some 700 years before he's even born. He's given to us. Isaiah 7, 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which is God with us. Then in Luke, earlier, Just before our text in chapter 1 of Luke, verse 26 and 27, Behold, this was Gabriel to Mary, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. I'm sorry, let me back up. Verse 26 and 27. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Why did he have to include that? Well, we know because we just looked at the prophecy in Isaiah 7.14. It would be a virgin that he goes to. This is a virgin. This is a teenager. There he is with the lowly again, with the humble, as she defined herself, announcing to the shepherds, reaching...